You know, your faith is like a fingerprint. Nobody else in this world can produce Islam in the way that you can. So how don't we know this as Muslims? So I thought I'm going to spend some, at least a good part of my life, talking to people about this. Because ultimately when we stand in front of God, we can't say somebody else thought for us. We left our fingerprint, we produced our faith in this world. Salam and welcome to the Claritas Books Podcast. I'm your host, Ramona Ali. Today we turn our attention to a man known as the teacher of the teachers. He was one of the most important Muslim scholars of the 20th century, yet his name remains largely unknown. Muhammad Abdullah Daraz was an Egyptian sheikh and the author of the book Morality in the Quran, the only book at the time that came close to expanding an ethical worldview of the sacred scripture. His book on morality has been expertly translated, revised and edited by Dr. Basma Abdul Ghaffar, who is vice president of a global think tank called the Maqasid Institute. Dr. Basma is also an associate professor of public policy, as well as an international consultant on Muslim affairs. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Basma. Welcome and thank you for carving out time for us today. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's absolutely my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm really looking forward to you helping us become more intimate with Sheikh Draz's work. So let's begin with who was Sheikh Muhammad Abdullah Draz and why should we pay him proper attention? So Sheikh Muhammad Abdullah Draz was born in the late 19th century, in 1894. And he completed his education in Alexandria in Egypt. He went to an affiliate of Al-Azhar University. His father is also an Azhar scholar, which obviously, for those familiar with the world of Islamic studies, is the pinnacle of religious education globally. In 1928, he actually joined the faculty. And in 1936, he was sent on a mission to France, where he would spend the next 12 years. In the Sorbonne, he would take up the study of philosophy and history of religions, of logic, of sociology, psychology, and ethics. And he would commence on his journey of exploring uh, morality in the Quran in particular. And that's the work we're going to talk about today. Sheikh Draz, as you mentioned, is considered the master of the masters or the teacher of the teachers. And he's made significant contributions to Islamic thought and jurisprudence, to maqasid al-sharia or the objectives of the sharia. Okay, so that is truly fascinating. He sounds like someone we really do need to know. What was it that drew you to his masterpiece? Why did you want to demystify it? Well, to be honest, I, I also did not know it exists like most uh, Muslims or even non-Muslims, unless you're an expert or a scholar of morality, you might not have come by this book. Because the original form of the book, which was Draza's doctoral dissertation, uh, La Morale du Coran, which was published in 1951, 
first of all, is in French, uh, which uh, there, there isn't much access to that. There were two translations made, uh, one in Arabic in 1972 and one in English in 2008. Uh, and they're both excellent translations. Uh, when I went back to the original to make sure if they were faithful, I found that they were. But the issue for me was um, something that Sheikh Draz had said in the preface to his work, which was that his initial plan was much more restricted and he contemplated only the exposition of moral law that emerges from the Qur'an. But of course, those of us who are familiar with doctoral studies, he was asked to incorporate elements from the famous schools of Islamic jurisprudence, as well as a number of Western philosophies. And so that original work became extremely complex. Brilliant, but complex. And so I thought, so many Muslims are missing, and so many people, not just Muslims, are missing on understanding, you know, the basic message he wanted to give to humanity. And, and it felt like an obligation. Someone had to do it for him. He must have become very busy or he had he wrote other books. And so this wasn't something he went back to. So I thought it would be it would be something, you know, a, a nice legacy to give. So really you're you're like our gateway to Sheikh Udraz because you obviously you've translated it from the French, so you're fluent in French and then you've also condensed it, simplified it, and made it digestible for more of a lay audience. Yes. And, and of course, being in English, my hope was that it would reach a much wider audience, you know, than yeah. either uh, the French or the Arabic. Well, it is such a compelling read. And Sheikh Daraz highlights five critical elements of morality. Could you just take us through them? Yeah. So what he saw... Um, in the Quran were these five elements. And the first element is obligation, which is a condition in which we feel bound to think or act in a specific way. And the, the beauty about, about that is that this is something that we all feel. This is universal in all of us. And it's what leads us all to work towards this common order, so that even if we're not all believers, the system is not totally chaotic. So the first element is obligation. The second element is responsibility. And to be responsible is to be obliged to answer for something or to be accountable to someone. So it is composed of two aspects. One is judgment and the other is action. In the judgment, we agree to take on the obligation and in the action, we carry it through. So the second is to be responsible to carry through that obligation. The third is sanction. And sanction is an approval or a penalty. And in, in Droz's words, it's the reaction of the law to our attitude. And it is composed of two things, really, initially, satisfaction or remorse. So when we take on an obligation, when we feel responsible for it, and we begin to undertake it, we either do it well, or we do it neglectfully, or, or not as perfectly as we could, or we neglect it completely, we don't do it. And what moral law will do is instill within us one of those two feelings. Either we are satisfied, or we fell short, and then we have remorse, or we neglected it. Either way, that's just 
the first stage of sanction. From there, we move into either performing more virtues and doing more good in the world, or rectifying our behavior through repentance and the way that that is done. So then he talks about the fourth element of the moral law of the Qur'an or the moral theory of the Qur'an, and it is intention. And intention really is what makes all of this properly Islamic. You, you have two aspects to being Muslim or to accepting Islam. One is called inqiyad, which is submission to the divine will. And the other is ikhlas, which is the exclusion of any other rule over our will. So inqiyad and ikhlas. Ikhlas here means that our intent when we perform an obligation, when we carry through with it, when we take on a responsibility, when we try to perfect it through the reaction of the law to our attitude, our intention is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or God. We are doing it only to please Him. We are doing it because virtue is a value in and of itself. And this is what makes um, Islam, as we're going to talk, this is what makes a morality in the Islamic sense Islamic and not broadly anything else. And then finally, um, the last element in, in the five is effort. Uh, and obviously that goes with what we were just saying. And an effort is not merely to act or to accept something, but it's to struggle with strength and perseverance. And he notes that there's two kinds of effort. One is eliminatory effort, uh, where we strive to um, get rid of bad inclinations, things that tempt us. Um, and once we do that, we can enter the realm of constructive effort. And those five taken together are morality in the Qur'an. So we have obligation, responsibility, uh, sanction, intention, and effort. And they go collectively together. So that's really, in a nutshell, what he's talking about. The freedom which conditions responsibility must rule human nature rather than be ruled by it. Despite our feelings, temperaments, ideas, and habits, we are free to make decisions. To will something is to order it. The total self is the ultimate arbiter of our powers, not only approving them, but more critically commanding them, so that they are at our service. This is how morality occurs, and how responsibility is engaged. It is not in the actual occurrence of the event, nor in the lack of strength of your senses, but in the contribution that you make to it in the final coloration which you imprint upon it in the seal of authority that you place on it. Justice demands that this human power be available to every person. That is fascinating. So he, he maps out the morality in the Qur'an uh, for us, and well, you have, have helped to convey that. And, and the book, it speaks of humanity and universalism of morality. So do we need religion in order to be moral? Yes. I, if you're asking me, yes. I mean, do we, do we need it to be basically moral? No. And this is what Draz says. You know, every human being is created with a light. Absolutely everybody has the innate capacity to distinguish between good and evil on a fundamental level. But in order for us to move towards the divine, in order for us to know how to navigate life in a way that maintains 
our relationship with the divine and our understanding of how he created both us and nature, then we need revelation. And so Droz beautifully states this by saying, it is not that the disbeliever or the person that rejects faith doesn't have a light. Indeed, they do have a light. But those who seek further illumination through revelation have a double light. That's really beautifully captured. So that is the the natural light that you, you mentioned in your excellent prologue to the book. I mean, listeners, if you read nothing else of this book, then read Dr. Busmer's prologue. Um, it really is beautiful and very touching. Now, the, the, the prophet, peace be upon him, he, he pointed to his heart and he said that this is where virtue is found. So when it comes to the internal intention or the external action, where does morality actually begin and end? Morality begins the second that you accept responsibility for an obligation. This is where it begins, when you consciously know that you are obliged to do something or to perform an act. This, this is where it begins. And, and then you decide how are you going to undertake it and for what purpose? What is your aim? You know, are you doing it for a, a worldly goal or a worldly end? Are you doing it because it would please somebody other than God? Or are you doing it because it has a value in and of itself because it has been commanded? And, and it continues uh, until you have either fulfilled it or rectified falling short. So it's not just completing the act itself. So we can accept that we have to perform the act, but the moral feeling within us, the, the, the moral process continues as we look back and say, did we perform it as we should have? And so really, um, the more conscious we are of our acts and how we behave and what we do, the more we can say that morality is, is a continuing thing. You know, it's, it's not something that stops. We're continuously seeking to be virtuous, to be good. Yeah, and it's amazing. It sounds like there are, there are mechanics to morality. So it's like he's broken it down for us because I've always thought of it as an abstract, but what you're describing, it's something that you can almost, it's almost tangible mm -hmm. um, in a way that is, is, you know, we can now break down what it means to be a moral being. Yes. Is it? fair to say that Muslims or even, you know, scholarship in general has been more concerned with with the legal rulings rather than kind of developing a deeper sense of our moral consciousness? I think it would be fair to say that on a very broad level. Um, of course, there are scholars and there's, you know, entire schools like the school of Maqasid, you know, that he contributed to wild, uh, widely. Um, where this deeper sense of moral consciousness is is very important. You know why we do what we do, and and for some listeners they might be familiar with um, the Maqasid school or the objectives oriented or based school, where the fundamental question is why the legal rulings, what do they aim to achieve, what is the context within which they are um, embedded, how can they lead to the same purposes of justice and mercy and equity and all of the other things that the Sharia or the Islamic way of life aims to achieve. So it is a fair statement, but at the same time, in all fairness, 
there is a centuries-long uh, tradition and school of thought that uh, focalizes our moral consciousness at the center of Islamic thought. You know, for, for a layperson like me, what kind of potential do you think that this book can really hold? Well, that's, see, that's the most significant thing. I find that so cool. You know what I did last Ramadan? I decided that I was going to talk about this book. You know, that would be my focus during Ramadan. And I did um, some sessions with a group in LA and and elsewhere, um, Nigeria and the Caribbean. Because the thing is, after I studied his work and, and I began to think about it in you know normal people terms, I thought, how can we be Muslim and not know this? You know, how can we practice Islam and not know what it means to be moral, what it means to be good? You know, what what our duties are, what it means that we're responsible. You know, what does sanction even mean? What does it mean when we feel guilty, mm. when we don't do something properly? And I began to think so many people haven't reflected sufficiently on their own inner construction, on how we are constructed as human beings, on what defines our humanity. And so, you know, I ask the layperson, the common, the, you know, us to think, where is this all coming from? Why do I feel guilty? Why do I think this is right? Why do I think that is wrong? Why do I agree with so many people on certain fundamentals, but then I can disagree on other things? Where is the disagreement coming from? Can we bridge it? How do we bridge it? And this all goes back to this incredible proposition that Draza is making. Now he's telling us, understand these five elements, because if you understand them, you will practice your religion better. You will realize you have to read the Quran for yourself. It's not just about legal rulings. It's about universal laws. It's about values. It's about objectives. It's about um, the parties that are involved, human and non-human. It's, you know, about the proofs, you know, that Allah provides for us in the universe and in the textual expressions of the faith. It's about so much more. And what this does is say, read and learn. And Andraza's theory really says, you have to internalize that. If you are going to be held responsible, you can't let anybody else make those understandings for you, you have to understand it yourself. You will take it in, you will question it, you will internalize it, and then only you will reproduce it in the world the way you know how to. You know, your faith is like a fingerprint. Nobody else in this world can produce Islam in the way that you can. So I found myself, how don't we know this as Muslims? You know, why do we go? Why do we ask so many questions to so many other people that cannot possibly be responsible for what, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or God has made us responsible for? So, yeah, so I thought I'm going to spend some, at least a good part of my life, talking to people about this. Because ultimately, when we stand in front of God, we can't say somebody else thought for us. We left our fingerprint. We produced our faith in this world. And I just think that it has to be ours. It's not something we can relegate to anybody else. That's incredible. I, I love that that line you said that our faith is our fingerprint. And, you know, Sheikh Daraz says that the, the Quranic notion of responsibility is premised on personality. So is is that what he meant by that? Yes, it is. It is um, 
one of the conditions that makes responsibility universal is that it is very personal. Um, it and 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 there, and he he gives us so many Quranic examples that are beautiful, like you know, for it the soul is what it has earned against it, what it has acquired. And whoever accrues a bad deed, he only accrues it against his own soul. So this is the personal nature of responsibility. We, we cannot, on the day of judgment, you know, throw this burden on anybody else, and, and nobody else can throw it upon us. And it's not a collective thing. You are ultimately responsible for yourself. And another beautiful place in the Quran that's not mentioned in this book, but it has the same meaning, um, is, is the incident where we see the wives of the Prophet, they, they had had this plan that was revealed to him by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then they said to him, how did you know? And he said, he revealed it to me. And then in the same surah, in the same chapter, we have this explanation of, look, and, and it's beautiful because it talks to women, because I love that it empowers women. It says, look, whether you are married to a saint, you know, whether it was Prophet Muhammad or whether it was Prophet Lot or whether it was Prophet Noah, whether you're married to a saint, but you don't choose the right things in life, you don't lead a moral life, you will be held accountable. Whether you are married to a tyrant, and it gives the example of Esia, the wife of Pharaoh, you know, you can still choose the right path and you can still extricate yourself from the evil. So whether you're married to a tyrant, still not an excuse. So he gives these examples of whether the closest person to you is a saint or whether they're a tyrant or whether you remain single, you are ultimately responsible for the decisions you make and the life that you lead. And, and I love the fact that the, the, the extension of this explanation is related to women. It's given through women, which is absolutely beautiful. It's saying, you know, be empowered. The decisions that you know, you ultimately make in your life have everything to do with you and not even the person you're married to. So, you know, you won't be able to say on the day of judgment, well, I was married to somebody great or, you know, somebody awful made me do that. You, you won't be able to do that. Well, that's that's incredible because it gives you so much agency and just, you know, and empowers you as, you, as you say, especially if it's, you know, in the context of, of women. Now, there are uh, lists, the virtues of morality and the honour that lies within them um, in the book. So would you be able to just uh, take us through a couple of examples and just illustrate them for us, please? So, you know, um, some of the virtues he, he talks about, let's just take two, like treating spouses well. You know, it's such an important um, aspect of our lives and so many people waste so much of their life um, in, in, in conflict. And, and disagreement within the family. It's quite unfortunate, especially in the ummah. Another one, for instance, is helping your near and distant relatives and neighbors and travelers and the needy in general. Help which is fittingly taken from excellent things that are properly obtained. So even in that one duty, look at how many things it brings together. Your relatives, your neighbors, travelers, strangers, you know, and you're giving them out of something that you obtained lawfully, and you're giving them out of something that you yourself love, you know, and this is part of being Muslim, you know, you, you can't attain faith until you love for your brother um, what you love for yourself. And, and this is kind of like the Muslim golden rule. But what I love about the Islamic version of the golden rule is it's not simply about loving for our brother what we love for ourselves, because we may love for ourselves, you know, a mansion and 20 cars and, and all these material things that are destructing the earth. But in, in the Islamic sense, it's you will not have faith. So what you love for your brother or your sister 
is linked to your conception of faith. It's, it's linked to what the divine teaches us is good and moral, and not necessarily what we think is good and moral. And then, of course, he goes on to tell us about the, you know, as I said, paradise. So he says that paradise is described as an immense garden, so immense that it is as wide as the heavens and the earth. Here one enjoys enjoys the freedom freedom to walk and rest rest whenever one wishes. wishes. A garden where there is always shade and the climate is always temperate, without excessive heat from the sun or severe cold. It is a happy and refreshing place with rivers flowing through it, rivers of water that are forever pure. Rivers of milk whose taste does not alter. Rivers of delicious wine that does not intoxicate and rivers of purified honey and fountains of water, variously flavoured, with which to mix the exquisite wine. In these blessed places, various fruits grow in abundance and offer themselves and branches within reach, which never break nor are forbidden. And he goes on. This is just a small aspect of it. So it just, it is so blissful. It is so relaxing. It is so peaceful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, and Sheikh Daraz um, also says in the book that the religious notion responds to an ideal of being, mm. while the moral responds to one of becoming. Could you just expand on that for us? So the, the religious responds to an ideal of being, the human being, the perfect human being. It's an object of, of knowledge, of contemplation, of beauty. We're talking about you as a whole, me as a whole. The moral responds to um, a work or an act of virtue. So one is the being, the perfect human being. The other is the perfect work. And what? And and that is an act of becoming. It is an act of creativity because virtue never ends. It's continuously unfolding. And in order for us to move towards being the perfect being, we have to undertake virtue. And so he says, we bring it together um, in what we are as human beings, you know, in, in, in adopting and adapting that divine order within us. So we are both, it is both the religion becomes our being, but we are constantly through virtuous acts becoming. You're definitely making me want to be a better person. So this is this is good. Um, and how how do you think the book has impacted you personally? I think it it is just altered how conscious I am of intention, and and that is so significant because so many acts that we perform, we perform without intention. And an act without intention is not properly moral. It, it has to have intention for it to be moral. Um, and I think that is the greatest impact on me, this consciousness that I try to bring to almost everything I do, you know. Um, and, and so that's been the greatest impact in, in my life, you know, from going to a walk to attempting to write another book to giving a lecture It's just that, why am I doing it? The constant question of why am I doing it? And I can I keep refreshing my intention while I'm doing it so I don't lose, um, that, that, that aim 
you know, that, that, that God is there so, so that arrogance doesn't enter into it or, or, you know, grandeur or illusions of grandeur, actually. Um, it's just to keep one humble. Uh, the intention is so, so significant. I just, this, this book, this work blew me away. It blew me away. You know, it spent two months, um, on the, on my night table. And then one day I just said, I'm going to read this. And I thought, oh my goodness, we have scholars that write like this. And, and I'd read for a few scholars, but, but nobody, nobody writes with such eloquence. And I must say, I got teary eyed when I read that he said, I'm sorry that I was not eloquent. I'm thinking, what? <laughs> you know, this is one of the most beautiful, most eloquent works that I have ever read for an Islamic scholar. And, and it blew my And then I began realizing as I listened to other scholars speak about him in the quietest way, you know, like um, Sheikh Al-Qaradawi said, he is, you know, he has a saying that he is the ocean of knowledge. He is the master of the masters. And, and he is unsurpassed. When you read his work, you realize any Muslim scholar today talking about morality and not mentioning Abdullah Draz has not done their homework. And, and, and that's very unfortunate. Yeah, that is well, that's so powerful. I mean, I can't even believe that I, I didn't even know about him until I read your, your, your translation. And that was beautifully explained. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Basma Abdul Ghaffar, thank you for enlightening us with Sheikh Daraz's work and giving us a much deeper perspective on it with your eloquence and knowledge and you know ability to explain complex ideas in ways that are really, really accessible. So thank you so much. Absolutely. My pleasure. I've been your host, Ramona Ali. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe. And you can explore more works at www.claritasbooks.com.